Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this uh, episode 330 of Charlotte Rears Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we're starting off with a feature of Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Iris Yamashita, um, a major new talent, according to Publishers Weekly. Library Journal calls her novel A City Under One Roof, a memorable debut crime novel. And next, we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called How to Get Something Started, Part 2. Yeah, and we uh, have a uh, blogger, uh, author, blogger, Caroline Alathis, uh, and her title is on Containing Multitudes, which explores the multiples inside writers. And then we're going to share our reading recommendations and book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming up in our next episode. Yeah, but what's up uh, with the podcast books first? Uh, we're celebrating the release this month of book one in the Right Quotes series titled The Writing Life. You can download this book uh, online for free and buy it uh, and print at Parkwood Books and wherever books are sold. And we're really excited to share these quotes. Yes, we totally are. Um, these quotes are inspirational. They're practical. We've pulled them from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors who live in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. The book has quotes that reveal what it really feels like to be a writer. And there's so many authors featured, including David Baldacci, Teresa Ann Fowler, Steve Barry, Lisa Jewell, John Hart, Sophie Cousins, Ron Rash, C.J. Box, Craig Johnson, Wiley Cash, and many more. It's like a song. Yeah. <laughs> So many more. With it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and one of our favorite quotes from the book, as the late Anthony Abbott so eloquently says, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living. And the more deeply and fully you live, the more you are able to write. Yeah. And so we're excited about book one. I just want to tell you that uh, we've got uh, book two, Learning to Write, coming April 1st. Book three, Writing Process and Tools, coming May 1st. Book four, Storytelling, Inspiration, Research, June 1st. Book five, this one's got a lot in it, Writing Techniques and Characters, uh, July the 1st. Book six, Writing Community Revision and Editors, August the 1st. Book seven, The Emotional Writing Journey. This is really a, a good one, too. Uh, talks about what it really, really, really feels like <laughs> to be a writer. That's September 1st. And book eight, Publishing and Bookmarking, October 1st. And uh, if you become a Patreon supporter for as little as $5 a month, we're going to give you these books, uh, ebooks for free. Um, and uh, you're going to get also access to these 150 exclusive episodes uh, on Patreon. Or you can join our street team and uh, get the books for free and just help us uh, share the word by putting up reviews about the books uh, online. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, and now that we've done the What's Up books, let's do the uh, What's Up with the co-host. Uh, what's up, Sarah? Well, um, as of when we were recording this, I was just in Charleston over the weekend, um, Hannah's Neck of the yeah. Woods, and I'm jealous that she gets to live there because it's such a cool town. Come back and visit. <laughs> we did like a bunch of, yeah, yeah, well, I'll be back for sure. Um, there's so much to see there. I did like some walking tours, some house tours, ate some really good food. Um, it's been nice to be there with the weather kind of warming up for springtime. It was in like the 70s mm -hmm. every day. So um, yeah, that's where I've been at. <laughs> How about you, Hannah? <laughs> I was just in Austin, Texas. We just missed each other. Um, yeah, I've, I'm sad that I missed you while you're here, but hopefully I can get both of you guys back yeah. down um, sometime soon. But yeah, I was just in Austin, Texas, my first time in uh, the great state of Texas. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. Um, Austin's a really cool city, a ton of art there, which I really loved. Um, lots of murals and, you know, bookstores and that kind of thing that I was happy to pop into and check out. Um yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So just kind of exploring a new place as well. What about you, Landis? Well, lots going on. We're um, trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to go live closer to our grandson and also uh, still live in Charlotte. So that's a <laughs> that's a challenge. <laughs> uh, we're going to be living in two or three places at one time, but that'll be happening in the spring here. And uh, we're also planning, as the two of you know, we're going to have a in-person workshop with the uh, the Charlotte Writers Club uh, in April. More details to come about that, where we're going to dive into the topics covered in the first uh, and second books of the series, The Right Quotes. And uh, 
that's going to be a free uh, opportunity for anyone in Charlotte to attend. Um, I think they may cap it at 50. But, uh, yeah, it'll be out there. We'll get some more information about that. And in addition to talking about that, it's going to be kind of a panel where you can pick our brains uh, about uh, things like uh, traditional publishing uh, and screenwriting, which uh, Sir has a lot of experience in, and uh, indie publishing that I've done a few things in. And Hannah can share some marketing. We can all talk about marketing, too. But uh, we'll, we'll be doing some of that and, and look forward to it. Um, but hey, we got uh, to get to act one right after this. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them. And when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are, act one. Uh, we've got an author feature um, and it's uh, Iris Yamashita. The book title is uh, Under One Roof. Uh, Sarah, tell us about Iris. Yeah, um, I read this book, City Under One Roof. It was so good. And Iris has a background in screenwriting. She's an Academy Award nominated screenwriter for the movie Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, she's been working in Hollywood for 15 years, developing material for film and TV and streaming. She's taught screenwriting at UCLA. Um, she's a big advocate of women and diversity in the entertainment industry. And she's also been a judge and mentor for various film and writing programs. She lives in California. Um, this is her first novel, and it's such a good story. I really enjoyed it. All right, Hannah, and you've got the tagline for the book yeah, here. Yeah, it is The Ultimate Locked Room Mystery. I like that description a lot. Um, City Under One Roof drops readers into an isolated snowy town and is perfect for fans of Twin Peaks, Mayor of Easttown, and Broadchurch. Love all of those. <laughs> yeah, those are good. And the New York Times uh, bestselling author, Laura Griffin, said this about uh, the book. Arish Yamashita delivers compelling characters, clever plot twists, and a story that will chill you to your bones. City Under One Roof is a must-read thriller. All right, well, with that, uh, let's listen to uh, Sarah's interview with uh, Iris. So I'm so happy to be here today with Iris Yamashita, author of City Under One Roof. Iris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you about the book. It was a wonderful read, really, really absorbing and thrilling. Um, the setting, it's set in this kind of isolated, claustrophobic town in Alaska that's frozen off from the rest of society. Um, it's a very integral part of the book, and it feels like the perfect setting for a murder mystery. Can you talk about how you came up with the setting for this book? Yeah, that's a good description. Um, I had seen a documentary and I'm pretty sure it was over 20 years ago because at that time, um, the only way into the city was via train through this long tunnel. Um, but since 2000, they have opened up the tunnel to car traffic. So now you can go by car. Um, but it always stood in the back of my mind as like, wow, that's such a cool place and such a cool setting. Um, the most interesting thing about it is that everybody lives in a single high-rise building and i thought yes like as you said oh that would be a great setting for a murder mystery but the idea for the murder mystery didn't come to me uh till many many years later yeah i, I can totally see that connection um and one thing that i really loved about the setting too is it allows you to create such an interesting cast of characters because it feels like it's a place where nobody just winds up in Point Meteor by accident. Everybody came there for a reason. So all the characters have really interesting backstories um, and interesting kind of range of personalities there. It felt like they could each have had their own spin-off book. <laughs> there was so much going on with each of the, even the, the smaller characters. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came up with the cast of characters here? Yes. Uh, so I was just trying to imagine um, why you would want to live in a city <laughs> where it's so hard to get to and where, you know, you would be living in, in a building um, and that would be your world. Uh, so I imagine that these characters have secrets um, that maybe they are running away from somebody or something in my fictional world. And I um, also remember kind of going through this tunnel, this two and a half mile one-way tunnel, um, and feeling like I was falling through a rabbit hole in like an Alice in Wonderland story. And where I ended up would be full of these strange, quirky characters. And that was sort of the jumping off point of um, 
developing the characters. Uh, the protagonist is a female detective, um, and she's sort of like Alice dropping into this strange town. And then I have another voice is Amy Lynn, a resident teenager. Um, she's the one who discovers body parts washed up on the shore, and her mother runs the local Chinese restaurant. And I just kind of um, placed her in my mind as the white rabbit that Kara sometimes chases after for clues. And then the third voice is Lonnie Mercer, and she's also a resident. Um, she has a mental disability, and she has a pet moose named Denny. And she kind of, she talks in word salads and she also wears a different color beret every day. And so I just kind of consider her as the Mad Hatter. Yeah, I love that Alice in Wonderland comparison. I totally feel that too. As you follow the protagonist into this world, it is like going down the rabbit hole and you don't know what you're going to find, but it's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, yes. And I have a lot of other Wonderland references for anyone who... Um, likes to find those little Easter eggs. Oh, that's so cool. I'll have to I'll have to reread this and keep that in mind next time. Um, but I know, I, I believe the town of Point Meteor is fictional, but it, it's similar to a real town. It sounds like maybe you went there for research. Can you talk a bit about some of the research you did in putting this together, whether on the, the setting or the how the police work comes together, the mystery, any sort of research you did along the way? Yeah, I did um, a lot of research on the, um, on the, the inspiration, the town, which is Whittier, Alaska, and it's a little um, a port town uh, during the summer season, which is the high season. They do have cruise ships that come in and out, and um, there are some shops and restaurants along the pier. Um, they also have a shipping industry and some fishing, uh, a fishing industry there as well. But um, uh, during the winter seasons is when it kind of shuts down and all the temporary seasonal workers will leave. And, um, you know, it's just the hardiest re residents who stay on through the whole winter. So that was interesting. I did also do research on um, Native Alaskans because there is a, a village that is a native village and um, Alaska has a very different setup than the lower 48 in terms of how um, native lands are handled and how they're governed and the rules change a lot too. So that was, um, that was a lot of research looking into that. Um, and then I did, yes, I did go visit the city, the inspiration, and I did stay in the building. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually a very beautiful town. I mean, the, the scenery from the windows is, is beautiful, and there's a lot of nature around. So I don't think it's quite as um, scary <laughs> as I have it in the book. But of course, again, I went during high season during summer, so it might be very different in the winter because the winds can reach like 150 miles per hour and the temperatures can dip to, you know, minus 35. So I think I'm sure it's a different experience in winter. Wow. I mean, you have to make it a little scary for a murder mystery. So <laughs> I think that's fitting. Um, and it really is a wonderfully complex mystery as well. The, there are a lot of twists and turns. There's a very thrilling conclusion. I'm curious how you approach plotting out a story like that. Did you outline everything in advance and you knew how it was going to end when you went into it? Did you make any discoveries along the way as you were writing? I, um, I do start with an outline. Um, I do that in screenwriting as well. And um, that really helps to actually uh, finish complete, you know, the thing, if, if I didn't have a roadmap, I think that's where I would get stuck. And I think that was my problem when I had first started writing that I couldn't complete a novel because I didn't actually plot things out. So now I do um, have an outline so that I have a destination, but I don't follow, you know, it never ends up like the way you outline. So, you know, you let yourself go into those tangents and different directions and, um, you know, let the character speak to you, um, things evolve. So that's why my, my first draft is um, what I call the vomit draft because it, it's gonna change and nothing is precious. 
and I just write kind of like in a train of thought almost and not always complete sentences and I can skip sections because I know I'm going to come back and I know everything's going to change. And so that's, that's my process. Yeah, it's important to get that vomit draft out, I think, just so you have something to work with. <laughs> if it's not there, you can't change it, right? Um, and Yeah, definitely. One of the things that was really interesting to me about this, too, is it's definitely a, a woman-led story. You have, as you mentioned, three point-of-view characters who are all female. Um, it's a, a setting where a lot of women have moved to escape stalking or violence in their paths. Um, but you also mention in the book that I believe it's the state with the highest rate of women murdered by men in the U.S. So you're kind of bringing some of those issues to the fore. Um, was that something that you consciously set out to explore in this novel? Kind of how was your approach with that? Yeah, that was something that came out in the in the research, like finding out the statistics um, in Alaska and how dangerous it is for women. Um, I did have a little bit of that in mind when I started, but I didn't know the whole picture until, um, you know, I really delved into the research. But I had read um, early on that there was uh, a resident who was uh, hiding out there from her abusive ex. And um, again, during the time when the only way in was by train, then the train conductor was almost like the gatekeeper and wouldn't let uh, a, an abusive ex on the train. And that was really interesting to me so that I tried to carry that into the story where now um, that cars can go through, the toll booth operator sometimes can be the gatekeeper to the city. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, talking about those different point of view characters, you know, we're, we're in close third person with several different characters here. Of course, as a screenwriter, point of view might not be something that you think about as much when you're writing a screenplay because the camera is kind of the default point of view. Um, so with writing a novel here, what was maybe challenging or, or fun for you about getting inside these characters' heads? Yeah, it is uh, it is a different way of writing, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed going into different perspectives and um, trying to figure out what their voice was. And um, yeah, as you said, in, in screenwriting, it's not as much because, um, you know, you hear their dialogue, but you don't hear their inner monologues, whereas in um in writing a novel, I had to go into their, um, what they were thinking in their, in their heads. And, um, it was challenging, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, Lonnie, especially because she has a mental disability was, uh, challenging, but, um, but I really loved writing her, but I could only do short chapters because it was very difficult. Yeah, her her chapters were always so interesting. Her voice is just so different from the other characters. Um, And I loved being inside her head. It was kind of perfect for a murder mystery, too, because sometimes you you know exactly what she's thinking. And sometimes her thinking is almost a mystery, even though you're in her head. (laughs) So it was a really, uh, really interesting balance that you walked there. And I think we're going to get to hear a little bit of her voice in a minute here. But um, before that, I just wanted to ask, I without giving any spoilers, I saw room in the ending maybe for a sequel or a return to some of these characters or this world. Do you have any plans to maybe return to Point Medier at some point? Yes, I actually am um, in the middle of writing the sequel. And uh, I will be bringing back some of the same characters and introducing some new ones as well. Oh, I'm excited for that. <laughs> um, but I, I would love, as you mentioned, to have you uh, read us a little bit from the book. Do you have a passage that you'd like to share? Yes. Um, so again, like uh, Lonnie was my favorite character, even though she was the most challenging to write. And I just have a little short um, section of uh, her chapter. Um, and, you know, each chapter is named for the character who's mind we're going into. So I'll read from chapter three, Lani. People were always talking about her behind her back. Lani knew it, like the lady in room 706. Lani imagined the words in her head, bitch, whore, witch, hussy, dumbo, crazy, loony, stupid. The lady was talking about her behind her back because Lonnie came from the Institute. Lonnie didn't like the Institute. There were lots of scary people there watching her. 
They were always watching her, giving her pills, pills she didn't need. And there were cameras and bells, bells that went off at night, and people running down the halls, scurrying like dogs, chasing cats, making lots of racket. Lonnie hated the noise. Clatter, clang, uproar, yelling, racket, discord, wailing, screaming, crying, bang, thud, quiet. It was a good thing she left. She knew she didn't belong there. She had to go. She had to go get Denny. Denny was her moose. Denny's fur was nice and soft, not like a dog's or a cat's. It was thicker and harder. But Lonnie liked the feel of it when she ran her hand across Denny's back. She especially liked the space on his muzzle below his eyes. She gave him a good brushing every morning and fed him oats, just like a horse. She'd never had a horse, but she was pretty sure having moose was almost the same. She kept Denny warm at night and put blankets on him and gave him water. When she was with Denny, she felt calmer and things didn't upset her as much. Lonnie found Denny one morning when she was out in the woods following rabbit prints in the snow. Lonnie didn't do any hunting. Chief wouldn't allow her to have a gun, but she liked looking at animal, animal prints. She knew all kinds of animal print patterns. Rabbits, foxes, elk, bear, moose, and of course, human prints. There were plenty of those that day, men going hunting. When they pulled the trigger, it made an awful boom, bang, pop, crack, thunder, jolt. It shook the snow off the trees, made all the animals skitter and tremble. She saw the men. She didn't recognize any of them, so they must have been tourists. They dragged Denny's mom out, leaving a line of red in the snow. It reminded her of when her mama's head got cracked and the blood poured out and made a line on the floorboards. Denny's mother was dead, just like Monnie's mother. People were always talking behind her back. Oh, I love that. There's so much to unravel there. <laughs> and of course, Denny the pet moose, the real star. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit more broadly just about your, your career with balancing screenwriting and fiction writing. I mean, this book, I could totally have seen it as a movie or a limited series, maybe. Um, can you talk a bit about how you decide when you're, when you're starting a story, what form you want to put it in, whether you think it would be appropriate for a feature, a TV series, a book? Well, interestingly, this did start off as an idea for streaming. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't have a foot in the streaming world, so I thought I would write a sample. Um, so this started out as an idea for a sample where I was going to just write the pilot of a streaming series. And um, uh, some producers did get interested in the pilot and uh, they wanted me to um, come up with the entire series uh, to pitch. And that's how it started. So I did... Um, figure out uh, the whole series. And then I came up with all the characters and what was going to happen and how the season was going to end. And then, you know, is, if there's going to be a season two, what would the possibility be? So that was really how it started. And by the end of that, I thought, wow, I have so much material here that I came up with that I think I could write a book about it. And that's how the book came about. Oh, that's fascinating. Do you know if there might be any plans in the future to kind of go the other way around and adapt it now for TV, <laughs> now that it's out as a book? Yeah, knock on wood, actually. Um, uh, they In Hollywood, they love having intellectual property to begin with um, before they, uh, you know, make something. So IP is actually more important than original ideas. It's It's very hard to get original ideas made, actually. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to see how that works. Um, I also noticed reading the acknowledgments of this book, um, I think you thanked your writer's critique group, which I love. Um, and, and we always like to talk about writing communities on this show. Can you talk a little bit about how you define your community as a writer and what role other writers play in your work? Yes, I have a great group of uh, fellow writers. Uh, we, we're all screenwriters. Uh, but interestingly, recently, we've all switched to writing novels. <laughs> but uh, but I, I love my writing group. They are um, 
my support group as well. Like we start off with just chit chatting and almost like therapy, which I think is great when you're, you know, when you're a writer, a lot of times you feel isolated. So to have a community of writers and, you know, just, just to um, talk about whatever your, what's going on in your life. And then we delve into our stories and um, it's, it's very, very helpful because I feel like, you know, we have a structure where you have to bring in uh, kind of 10 pages every time. And um, it makes you work harder because you know you have to entertain these people in your group who are all professional writers. So, you know, it makes you want to be a better writer. Yeah, that, that accountability, I think, is huge. And like you said, too, it's therapy. <laughs> There's like a special oh, type definitely. of therapy that writers can give each other that no one else quite gets. But yeah, I think that's wonderful. Um, so one question that we like to ask a lot of our, our authors on this show, too, is if you could give one piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, what would you like to tell yourself? As a younger writer, um, I would say don't give up. <laughs> There's a lot of times when you feel like I should just, you know, give it up. Um, but you just have to, you have to persevere. And I think um, in my case, uh, I did go from different media. Like, as I said, I, I wanted to be a novel writer first, and um, but I couldn't finish the novel. So then I switched over to screenwriting and that worked out. And then, um, you know, there, there are times when I, I actually did like a stage show as well, where you just have to find a different medium to express yourself in if one isn't working out. Um, you can try another. And that's really what I did. You know, I, if, if I wasn't going to be able to um, get the streaming series out uh, initially, then, you know, switch over to writing a novel and that worked out. So, you know, you just, it's a lot of perseverance. It's a lot of luck and you just have to, you know, just believe in yourself and, and believe in your work. Yeah, that that's wonderful. And I think you're just such a prime example of that, of persevering. And even though you've had big success in other areas too, just always try something new and be flexible and be adaptable and keep chasing those stories. Um, and, and I'll let you go soon because I know you've got a busy day, but um, do you have anything else coming up that you'd like to share? I know you're working on a sequel for this. Anything else coming out that you'd like to share with us? Uh yeah, it's just the, the sequel that's coming out. And I am working on other projects in Hollywood, but, you know, we never know uh, how far it's going to get. Mm -hmm. uh, I can I get paid to write screenplays that never get produced. So it's just kind of, you know, a throw of the dice all the time. That is very true. <laughs> but thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, I encourage everyone to go out and check out this book. It's a really absorbing read and get ready for that sequel. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, here we are in Act 2, uh, Writing Topics uh, with Charlotte Litt uh, and also our community blog uh, uh, we have here on the podcast. Uh, so uh, this one is Paul Reale's How to Get Something Started, Part 2. Let's listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale from Charlotte Litt with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the second of four tips about how to get something started. Emerging and novice writers, when confronted with a published writer, often ask this question, where do you get your ideas? It's the wrong question. A better question is, what makes something worth writing about? Today, we look at one way of finding something worth writing about, answering the question, what's different about today? This is a kind of plot starter, one that begins with a story rather than with the character. You begin thinking about a moment when things change and then have characters respond to that change. This setup works for fiction and nonfiction. In either instance, the something different about today that happens is what makes the story worth telling. 
you begin thinking about an event or occurrence, a thing that upends characters, and then you add the characters. Your action step for trying this out is to generate a list of possible what's different story starters. Here are some examples to illustrate. An unexpected visitor comes by. Your character arrives at their local coffee place where they go every day and see the same people and find that it is permanently closed. Yesterday, a character is not married. Today, she is. Or, yesterday, a character is married. Today, she is not. This morning, a character is living an ordinary life. By evening, he is in prison. This morning, a newlywed couple makes love. By the end of breakfast, they've had their first fight. And so on. Don't judge their quality. Just write them down as they come to you. After reaching 20 or more, see if one speaks to you as something you might like to write about. Populate the story with one or two characters, which might include you if these are real-life events, and begin telling the story. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right, Paul, thanks again for uh, another great tip. Um, I'm beginning to think that uh, Paul likes coffee because he sets a lot of his examples <laughs> in coffee shops. Say it, Paul. <laughs> it's the writer's domain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, um, what about that, Sarah? Uh, what's different about today? Is, uh, is that a nice prompt, uh, something that uh, might get your juices flowing? Yeah, I think that's a great thing to think about. And it's something that... Um, a lot of times I've heard writers say like what's different or what, uh, why now kind of asking the why now of a story, something that when I've given or received notes comes up a lot. Um, like when you're choosing to start your story, why, why is the story happening now in this character's life? Like why are they either making a decision that's different from what they would have decided before or doing something different? Why is something changing in their life? Why are they at a point personally where we want to see them go on some kind of emotional psychological journey um so asking yourself why at this juncture in the character's life is this story happening but i think this tip about asking yourself what's different is is strong because it really gets at kind of the heart of classic storytelling you know you have that inciting incident and the hero leaves kind of their state of stasis their status quo when they go into a new situation whether it's a physical journey or a metaphorical journey um and so you want to see something big happen and change in the the beginning of the character's story whether it's something that seems outwardly big um or just something that's a significant change in their life and their circumstances even if it's might be small to another uh another character um or from your perspective but if it matters to the character you see some kind of seismic change happen in their world um so yeah i think that's a really good starting point to just kind of throw those ideas around like he was saying and um get those ideas yeah, going. And, and so hannah i'm thinking here that uh we've got hannah pre-gwen and hannah post-gwen headed down to austin there, there's something different oh right? yeah for sure <laughs> so the big th a big thing changed for me <laughs> you could write a whole story about that you're how you're yeah how right? you're just your brain your mindset just like is totally different absolutely <laughs> i know i really yeah. like this tip a lot i feel like i was thinking about it too from the like as a reader as well just kind of like when you're i'm, I'm a big fan of kind of like I mean, I don't know. I like all sorts of different books, but I, I love, uh, I think I've recommended a couple of Sally Rooney books that are very like kind of slower pace, very character driven and that kind of thing. But there's still something that happens pretty much like at beginning, middle and end of um, this, these books, because there's just like the character goes through something or they meet someone new or something like that. And um, I think, you know, watching people change and watching situations change and seeing how the world around you has affected the plot of your life is a really powerful thing to think about as you're writing. Um, Cause you know, if, if I'm reading a book and you're just, it's sort of just like dialogue or, <laughs> you know, it's 300 pages of like nothingness. You just sort of get to the end and you're like, well, what, what just, how did I transform uh, reading this? Cause I think reading is a transformational experience. So if you have nothing that like, happens <laughs> to like change your life a little bit i don't know so i mean i think that's a really good tip yeah i think uh aj hartley was the one who said um or maybe it was some i can't remember which one was it, it might have been him uh that uh there are no stories out there maybe it's aaron gwynn that's right they're both unc charlotte uh, professors one of them gets credit for this we'll have to look at the book to see but it said 
Uh, there are no stories where characters are just sitting in recliners. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> something, something has got to happen. Something's going to happen. But I love this uh, couple of the questions that Paul raised, like what is worth writing about? Uh, and when I think about that, I think about, um, you know, okay, how does that question, you know, to be interpreted? Is it what's worth writing about to the public or what's worth writing about to the writer? And I think if you, if you answer the question of, what's worth writing about to the writer, you might be able to complete the project and it'll probably have more meaning than if you're trying to figure out what's worth writing about to the public because then it's about chasing something that uh, you may not be that passionate about. So when you answer that question, what's worth writing about, think about maybe what's worth it to you. What would excite you? What would, what would come that through line that would make you finish finish that book? Um, yeah, so great po uh, stuff, Paul. We really appreciate it. Uh, uh, we're going to jump to the community blog post uh, right after this. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemearspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits. But with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post or community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. Yeah, and Caroline Alantis, uh, uh, an author, did submit to the community blog. We accepted that blog post, and we printed it on our website, put it in the newsletter, and now we're going to share it with you. The title is On Containing Multitudes. It explores the multiples inside writers. Uh, Sarah, you want to tell us about uh, Caroline? Yeah, so Caroline's a novelist, a blogger, and a freelance writer. Um, she's the author of two novels, To Give a Rose and Ecological Memory, as well as two experimental serialized novels, School with No Name, which has been completed, and Pilgrim of Oz, which is still gaining new posts. Um, she also writes two blogs, Climate and Emergency, and News from Caroline. She's published numerous pieces of short nonfiction. Um, she's busy. She's always writing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. Very active, too, and... In, in dealing with issues. So uh, let's listen to what Caroline has to say. Caroline Alanthus on Containing Multitudes. A friend of mine recently discovered there is more than one of her. The true name of her condition would not be familiar to most readers, but multiple personality disorder, an old and not especially accurate term, will get you in the right conceptual ballpark. It sounds so exotic, doesn't it? like something no actual human being could have or be. That's how we usually talk about things that are too outside the norm, experts who don't have the condition informing lay people who, they assume, don't have it either. That human beings vary seems an alien concept. So let me just say it. Having more than one personality as a result of some trauma isn't common, but it's not weird either. For my friend, it's entirely normal. Her discovery has gotten me thinking about the ways that other people contain multitudes, too. For example, when I remind myself to bring in a load of firewood later, who is doing the reminding? Who is being reminded? When I want to go for an energizing walk, but instead stay comfy cozy on my nice warm couch, what exactly is going on? Is there another me with its own agenda that can thwart the will of the I who wants to go for a walk? That human beings are multiple is an insight probably as old as humanity. The spirit, the soul, and the body. The body and the mind. The emotional self and the intellect. The ba and the ka. Depending on whom you ask, the terms and the relationships involved vary, but the overall theme is consistent. And then there are alter egos, professional personas, actors and their characters, children and their imaginary friends, muses. What the heck are muses? I don't mean a person one finds inspiring. I mean a muse in the original sense, the daughters of memory. Spirits who deliver poems and stories and so forth to the minds of writers and others. It's an ancient Greek idea, but one immediately understandable to modern creatives, because that's what it feels like sometimes. A delivery of inspiration from somewhere else, someone else. A gift that cannot be willed or predicted, but only received with gratitude as a grace. That's what it feels like, but is that what it is? 
Are muses independently, objectively real beings? If they aren't, why do they feel like they are? Speaking of writers, there's a phenomenon I, and probably most other fiction writers, are familiar with, books and even characters arguing with us. My current work in progress fought with me for several years, not allowing me to proceed with writing, nor allowing me to stop in favor of some other project. The book that has finally allowed itself to be written, I'm in revisions now, is not the book I intended to write. When books argue with writers, the book always wins. I have had characters argue with me, but the ones I'm working closely with at the moment are more cooperative, or perhaps I am more cooperative with them, rendering arguing unnecessary. Anyway, they do seem like real people, people who are not me, people I can have thoughts and feelings about, and yet they must live inside my head, as they don't appear to live anywhere else. I can watch movies with them. They don't always like the same movies I do. I can adopt their body language, their physical persona at will, at least when I'm not distracted. From talking with other writers, I can say none of this is unusual. I'm not making light of my friend's condition. I'm not joking or engaging in metaphor. I'm suggesting that the neural equipment she uses to create her alters is the same equipment all of us, or at least most of us, have and use for other things. And to this facet of the human mind, we owe, among other things, fiction. Here's one way to look at it. If a personality was an eternal, immutable entity, then it wouldn't change as a result of brain injury, nor could multiple personalities develop in the same brain. So what is a personality? It seems to be collaboratively created by many different neural structures and processes, each of which have their own things going on. The self is thus a project, a creation, a character, the first and last one a writer ever develops. All right. This is sort of a brain bending yeah, mind. <laughs> post here that's uh, got you wondering and then going aha and then going yeah and then wondering again. It's like I might have to hit the rewind button and listen. 50 more times. Thank you for that, Caroline. It's uh, some very interesting stuff here. And, you know, sometimes we do get synergy here because Paul's series this month on the Tune Tips is about, uh, you know, how do you get started? And she's talking about muses and spirits and all these things that kind of help us get started. But, uh, you know, uh, Sarah, have you ever had characters argue with you or your books argue with you? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> it, it is. It's a, a funny thing because I think you hear writers talk about that a lot, like characters talking to them or telling them to do certain things um, or their books or their stories talking to them and or talking about like the muse, like Caroline mentioned, as this sort of external force or being giving you stories and ideas. But like it's it's you. <laughs> it's all coming from within your own brain. Um, and, you know, whether it's a literal situation of like dissociative identity disorder or something like that, I, I think we all do have multiple voices and personalities and perspectives in our minds. Um, and that's something that is really cool about writing fiction is that you get to explore that and you get to take different parts of yourself and different parts of your life experience and kind of split them out into characters and maybe write about people who in some ways are totally different from you and different from your life, but who you can still relate to in some way. And you can still kind of put yourself to see life through their eyes, um, which I think is a really cool experience. Yeah, now, Hannah, you deal with a lot of uh, creatives in your job as a publicist, and you're also coming up with ideas of your own to help them be storytellers of their stories. Um, do you see a lot of this in, in the creatives you work with, that they sort of have these uh, multiple personalities? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, like, majority of writers are kind of eccentric people. Um, just, I, I, and that's a compliment, you know. I, I think of myself as kind of an eccentric person. <laughs> you know, I feel like as a storyteller, you kind of have to be able to identify and listen to the different voices in your head and sort of, actually, one of the interviews I did uh, lately with Jennifer Herrera, which will air later on, that was sort of something that we talked about that was really interesting about just how, you know, you have like two versions of yourself and of your characters and of everything. It's like, it's not, no one is ever just one person. You know what I mean? There's like a before and an after of something traumatic or there's like a me yesterday before I fell and broke my face. And then there's me with a face cast today, <laughs> whatever. It's like you have all sorts of different. So I think it's an interesting thing that Caroline's talking about just having, um, you know, you have multiple 
you have people that are diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, but also I have like eight people living in my brain. So what does that mean about me? Um, and yeah, like I think probably my favorite authors that I've ever worked with are probably the ones that, um, that I'm thinking on the top of my head, you included Landis, you know, you got some wild characters in your books, right? Just some funny people. Um, so it's, it's just, I don't know for sure. I think like, I think, um, it's a great way to kind of be, to be all these people all at once. <laughs> yeah, it is strange how uh, some of that develops, um, but it's exciting to to have something end up on the page and and be a part of it, but not be the sole reason for it. I don't know if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, to have been there to experience, I've heard a lot of authors talk about how you just need to be open to what the universe has to offer and uh maybe the universe will gift you with this particular idea and when it does you know you need to make a choice are you going to run with it are you going to let somebody else uh mm -hmm. pick it up and run with it so yeah it's great great uh, a lot to think about here about uh multitudes um and how you contain them and i, I suppose authors contain them by putting them into stories uh drawing on these different uh ideas and characters and working with them or arguing with them or whatever but uh yeah that's part of the process all right well look we uh we're going to jump to uh our last uh, five minutes of the show where we have a few book recommendations and we have uh, uh an elevator pitch uh but first uh this we have a newsletter called beyond 300 and we'd love to have you sign up this is where we share what's coming on the podcast provide helpful links and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts you can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, Act 3, book recommendations, listener engagement, and what's next? Uh, Sarah, let's talk books. What are you recommending this week? So I'm recommending a book that I read years ago. I'm kind of like digging into some of my older reads just because I've been reading a lot for interviews lately. So I haven't had as much time to read um, other books on my own. But this is called The Bumblebee Flies Anyway by Robert Cormier. And I read this, I was probably like 10. I read a few of his books when I was a kid and remember like really loving his writing. And so I've always wanted to go back um, and reread his work as an adult and see what I think of it now. Um, so I'm kind of putting this out there as a challenge to myself of like, I'm going to, I'm going to make that happen this year. I'm going to reread or read for the first time one of his books um, that I haven't read before, but he, he wrote YA. Um, the characters are young. They're kind of geared towards a younger audience, but it was very like dark and weird and um, sort of unconventional. And this book, the bumblebee flies anyway, I believe is about a teenage boy who's in this, um, experimental facility where they're like testing drugs on kids and teenagers. Um, and I just remember like really loving his writing and these sort of weird worlds that he would create. So I'm recommending this book and all of his books. Um, I think he was a really kind of iconoclastic and interesting writer. Very nice. Very nice. Hannah, what you got? First of all, another great title. <laughs> That's an awesome title. Yeah. All anyway. his titles are so good. <laughs> anyway, um, the book yeah. I'm going to re recommend today kind of has a marketing twist to it. Uh, so I'm sure all of you guys have heard about Colleen Hoover. She's coho on uh, t uh, TikTok. She's got this like insane TikTok following that she's she was originally self-published and now she's just like this huge sensation. Um, and her book called Verity is in you know i'm gonna be honest like some of her books i've tried a, a few of them and they don't really hit the spot for me necessarily they're all very like super plot driven and i'm kind of more of a character driven person but this was a really interesting uh book it was like a thrilling uh it was it was really good but it was it's about a writer who um she ends up being hired as a ghostwriter for this woman who uh, she moves into her house and she's like in a coma or something, I think. I'm trying to remember. Um, and she ends up getting really close with her husband and there's this whole twisty thing that happens. It's kind of hard. It's, it's like part romance, part like thriller, part like gone girlish type of thing and it's just really really good it was the first book i read by her um a couple of years ago i'm also digging into the archive a little bit but uh <laughs> but yeah it's it's really good and also for all of you i would say go check out her tiktok like if you're an author that's trying to think like looking into starting one and you can kind of see how she just like totally transformed her brand and now she's just like 
everywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you talked about us TikToking sometimes. I know. So we'll, I'm, gonna, we'll on, I'm doing that this month. We're standing by with our yeah. waiting on that. That's on my list for this month. <laughs> well, uh, since it's March and things are starting to warm up a little bit, uh, I'm thinking about uh, golf. And so uh, there's a book by Tom Coyne called a course called America, where he went uh, all around the country and played, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of golf courses and talked about his experiences. So if you're a golfer uh, or want to be a golfer, it's, it's a great insight to one person's uh, look at all these different uh, golf courses. And since I've got a couple of trips coming up uh, this year, including one in June to Wisconsin, where I've never been, to play a couple of golf courses, that'll be uh, fun. So check out A Course Called America. And now we've got uh, Mark West with Storied Charlotte Blog. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte Blog. My book recommendation today is an historical novel by Jimmy Carter. Carter's been on my mind a lot lately, and I've gone back and reread some of his books. Carter is the very first president to publish a novel. And that novel is called The Hornet's Nest, a novel of the Revolutionary War. Carter wrote this novel himself. He didn't use a ghostwriter or anything like that. And he also did the research himself. This novel is about the Revolutionary War as it was fought in the American South. Much of the novel takes place in Georgia and the Carolinas. For anyone who's interested in the Revolutionary War, I highly recommend The Hornet's Nest by Jimmy Carter. I had no idea. I guess I need to go read that book since yeah. I wrote the <laughs> Revolutionary War period and uh, another, another nice post about uh, Jimmy Carter there. Um, all right. Well, we're going to uh, have a short elevator pitch here by Brenda Wilson uh, and uh Listeners, if you want to do your own pitches, you've got a book, go to our contact page on the website, charlotterpodcast.com, and uh, you can leave your audio pitch, and let's listen to what uh, Brenda has to say. Brenda Wilson, The Red Door Scriptures. In the 1900s, three women seeking atonement began to share their stories in the blank spaces of the Bible. That's got to be our shortest yet. It's about 12 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> she, she really got in and got out. Nice, there you Brenda. go. Thanks, yeah. Brenda, for that. <laughs> uh, that sounds fun. Um, all right. Well, um, let's do this. We've got uh, another episode that's coming because we always do. We're releasing on Tuesdays. Sarah, let us know what's coming next, please. Sure. So next time we're going to feature two authors from the same publisher, Lisa Williams-Klein in her historical romance novel Between the Sky and Sea, and Hope Carroll, also known as Betsy Thorpe, in her novel The Veil Between Worlds, which is a time travel historical romance book. Um, we also feature William Gray, author of The Man Behind the Door. He's going to be sharing his blog post called Always Be Workshopping. And we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte Lit two-minute tip, our elevator pitches, and our book recommendations. All right, Hannah, take us home. All right, guys. Read on, ride on, rock on, enjoy the sunshine. Happy spring. <laughs> there we go.